Good morning, everyone. Welcome to a new space and a new chapter and new adventures and changing colored lights and uh, air conditioning that's holding on for dear life. Um, it's so good to be with all of you this morning, not bringing your own chair. It's, it's really, it, it really is, there's so much to be thankful for. We have drums again right now. Um, it's nice to be able to have that and, and a lot of hard work has gone into getting us to where we are at right now in this space. So we hope you'd feel welcome here. I'm sure you've got lots of questions about things and we hope to answer as many of those as uh, you've got in, our, in the days and weeks ahead. Um, but it's really a joy to be with all of you this morning. If you have your Bible, would you join me in opening up to Galatians chapter 6? Galatians chapter 6. Uh, our church has been, this is the third week in a three-part series that we've done that we called, uh, we called it Church Culture. And we really wanted our, these last few weeks, to be an honest articulation of who we desire to be as a church. So if you joined us two weeks ago, I, standing in the blazing hot sun, attempted to persuade you all that we must go from being a, 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 where we're at now as a church to becoming a culture of invitation. And what we meant by that and what I meant by that was that we want to be a church where we have encountered Christ and then as we've encountered Christ, we invite other people to also meet Christ. And we looked at a passage with Nathaniel, where in the Gospel of John, he meets Jesus. And then after he meets Jesus, he instantly goes to Philip and tells Philip, Philip, you've got to see and meet Jesus. And we said, as a church, we, we don't want to be a people who gather together and just simply worship we want to do that, but we really want to make sure that we're eyes open to the people that the Lord has placed in our lives and grabbing them and saying, if you have not met Jesus, we want you to meet Jesus. And so we talked about becoming a culture of invitation, and we are, our hope is that next year, maybe around this time, we as a church would have been able to embody a greater spirit of invitation. And then last week, if you were here, Tim, uh, again, stood in the hot sun, blazing hot sun, and, and preached about a culture of discipleship. And, and here's what we said. We said that Christians and disciples are not two classes of people, but every Christian is a disciple of Christ, and every disciple of Christ is called to help make more disciples of Christ. And so we, we recognize that the tendency for many of us is to be a part of a church where we walk into a space, we hear some singing, we consume a sermon, and then we leave hoping that we have somehow been discipled. But it's really our desire as a church not to just come and have whatever happens up here form and disciple us, but to be a church where each one of us sees it as our responsibility to help Others become disciples in the way of Christ. And so Tim talked about that last week. And again, our hope is that hopefully a year from now, we will look out and say, we're not just a church that seeks to make disciples. We're a church that's making disciples whose disciples are making disciples. Again, not of us, but of Jesus. And then this week, we're going to talk about what does it mean to become, in the future hopefully, a culture of greater service. A culture of greater service. 
<clears throat> these last couple of years have been pretty exhausting. I don't know if you feel exhausted. I know I certainly feel exhausted. We've gone from a building to outdoors. Now we're back indoors into a new space. We've gone from setting up easy ups to setting up chairs. We've gone from Zoom calls, which were exhausting, and many of us don't want to go back into the office because that also looks exhausting. We are stuck at home often more than we want to be, and we feel a disconnectedness in our own relationships. Pastorally in the church, one of the great challenges is that we are all desiring greater connection and community, and we're all very tired. I don't know how tired you are. I don't know what spaces in your life you would point to and say, I'm, I'm tired. Maybe it's in your job, you feel tired. Maybe it's in your marriage, you feel tired. Maybe it's in parenting. Parenting is exhausting. Maybe you feel tired. Maybe you've got friendships that are strained and they're difficult and you've wanted to, you've worked on them, but you're kind of at a point where you say, I don't know if I can give anymore. I don't know what else I can do, and you're tired. I recognize in preparing a sermon this morning that is about becoming a culture of service that for many of you, when the moment you hear me say, we got to serve, many of you go, yeah, no, thank you. I'm ready for a season to be served. I'm, re- I'm looking forward to a season where I can just show up and I can just have other people take care of my needs. I think we, we crave that sometimes, we desire that. And so I recognize that when we say a culture of service, that, that some of you hear that and you think to yourselves, that's going to be quite difficult for me to get excited about because I'm tired. You know, years ago, I had the opportunity to go on to a, a Mexico missions trip. We went down to Mexico when I was in high school, and we worked on building houses, We worked on uh, doing a VBS for local communities, sharing the gospel, uh, serving alongside churches. We, as high school students, I was in a larger youth group, we rolled in to this camp, and we would stay with hundreds of high school students, and it would be so hot in the summertime, and we would sleep on the ground, and we would be serving day in and day out. And we would be exhausted, and I will never forget that about day four of our six-week Uh, our six-day journey of service. Day four, I didn't sleep well. I was exhausted. I was not looking forward to swinging a hammer anymore. And a girl in our camp, a fellow high school student, woke up in the morning, and she woke up with this. She woke up with, rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. And I was so angry at her. (laughs) I did not want to rise. I didn't want to shine. And I didn't want to give God glory. I wanted to give her a piece of my mind. And, and I remember feeling like she was so excited to serve, and I wasn't. And I remember feeling like maybe she's really Christian, and I'm not. And sometimes I feel like as a Christian, we feel like our options are either to do nothing, or we've got to be happy and clappy about it all the time. And the Bible is more realistic than that. So this morning, how do we think about service when we are weary? And what lessons does God's word have for us in Galatians chapter 6? If you're familiar with Galatians chapter 6, it's a text where Paul is writing to correct the church, and he's given them lots to do. And as he's beginning to wrap up his 
uh, his letter to the church, he says this in Galatians chapter 6. He says this, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is God's word for us together this morning. This is the text that I hope we leave with a greater understanding of. This is the text I hope challenges us. So let me give you an outline, as I often do. These are what I'm going to talk about this morning briefly. Uh, Persistence in service. I'm going to talk about the prize of service, the people of service, or the people who we serve and the priority in our service. So if you're taking notes, these are the four uh, places I'm going to hang out, and they're all going to be directly from the text this morning. So persistence in service, the prize of service, the people we serve, and the priority of service. You'll see all of this in the text. We'll begin with persistence. Um, Paul, like I said, has given the church so much to do in Galatians. Tons to do. Uh, Tons of corrections to make. And he recognizes in Galatians chapter 6, right off in verse 9, he says, let us not become weary in doing good. The, The first thing he says is Paul recognizes that there is a battle that exists in you between your desire to do good and your exhaustion. He knows that that's something that's going to become tempting to you. And so he says right out of the gate, don't become weary in doing good. Now, is Paul suggesting that we would never experience exhaustion? No. Paul is writing to an exhausted people. In fact, he'll say at the end of this verse about the importance of not giving up. But, But he wants us to understand that we ought not to grow weary in doing good. And there are lots of reasons we grow weary in our doing good. Sometimes we grow weary in doing good because we are very excited about something and we look around and no one else is as excited as we are. Sometimes we grow weary because we were initially very excited about the launching of a new project and a new venture and then we quickly realized that new ideas are so fun, following through on ideas are really difficult. Anybody else have the tendency to get really excited about a new idea and struggle to follow through? Anybody else? Yeah, a bunch of you. During COVID, I and the rest of the world decided I was going to get into golf. So I did the responsible thing. I didn't go out and buy a bunch of new equipment. I went out and bought a bunch of used equipment because I thought to myself, it's outdoors, COVID safe. It's an opportunity to connect with people. I had worked at a golf course when I was younger, and I thought this will be a nice opportunity to reconnect. So I went and I went to Facebook Marketplace, bought a set of used clubs, got them all together, made sure I had things, called my friends who were in the golf and asked them, do I have the right things that I need? They said yes. Drove to Rancho Park on a Friday, which is a a, a kind of driving range, uh, and, and everybody in Los Angeles also happened to show up that day. Um, And I I got out my clubs, I parked, I walked, I stood there, I looked around, and I thought, not today. So I took the clubs back to the car, 
I drove back home. About a couple weeks later, I decided I'm going to try this on like a Thursday. Drove to Thursday, got the clubs out, waited twice as long this time, 30 minutes, and then decided, you know, maybe golf's not for me. Took the clubs back into the car, brought them to the garage, and have only used them once the whole time. They are collecting dust alongside of other things that we have. And I'm sure you probably have things that are collecting dust that once were great ideas as well. We make jokes about the exercise bike that always collects clothes on it, right? Or that new piece of equipment or furniture, all those new... Some of you got really into like bread making during COVID, right? You baked a few sourdough loaves and you haven't baked anything since. The, the initial idea is very exciting and then the persistence that it takes to follow through is quite difficult. Some of us, we just don't see results. Gym memberships promise that you'll get, come in and get, go to the gym at the beginning of January and you go and you sign up and then you go for a few days and you don't like the results and then you go home and they make the money and make it hard to cancel. Sometimes we wrestle with the reality that, that the Christian faith is a long obedience in the same direction and we would much rather prefer instantaneous results. Paul says, let us not become weary in doing good. In doing good, in serving, in loving, in correcting, in coming alongside of. Some of you have relationships in your life where someone is suffering and the moment you heard they were suffering, you did something. But then they're still suffering and you're not sure what to do. Some of you have been on the receiving end of what it's like to get a lot of support at the beginning of your challenging diagnosis. And then a long time of really nobody showing up because they don't really know how. Because they got weary in doing good. So the first thing that Paul says is we need persistence. We need the, uh, the commitment to continue to do good even when it's difficult to do so. Some of you this morning need to be reminded that there are places that the Lord has called you to serve and do good and you've been tempted to give up because you haven't seen results because you're tired. Now, I'm not calling you to unsustainable living, to be clear. I'm not saying don't rest. In fact, some of you, the reason you're weary is because you don't rest. So Paul doesn't have this sense that you do good and you never take a Sabbath. No, 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 no. You must rest. But he recognizes that even when we rest, we will sometimes grow weary in doing good. And Paul says, no, we can't, we can't give up when we start to feel weary in doing good. In those relationships we have, in those commitments we make, in those ventures that we take on, we must not grow weary in doing good. We must be persistent. But then secondly, he wants to give you motivation for understanding where this persistence is to come. And he points to the prize of doing the good work. Right? Notice the next section. He says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Paul draws again on agricultural imagery, as the Bible often does. He talks about a harvest 
a harvest that will emerge from our persistently doing good. That the seeds that we will plant in our doing good will yield a harvest. When will they yield a harvest? Paul says, at the proper time. Now, at the proper time is difficult. Because if you decided you were going to get into planting tomatoes, let's say, and you bought tomato seeds and you scattered them, and if two months from now, three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, you had no tomatoes, you would assume that you bought bad seeds or that you've been a failure as a gardener. In our material world, our expectations are simple. I do the work, I plant the seed, I do persistence, and then I get the results in a time that I desire. Nobody, no one goes to be a farmer, plants tomato seeds, and then you go, hey, so when do the tomatoes arrive? And they go, I don't know, could be one year, could be 50 years, could be 100 years. All I know is I'm in the tomato business. We'd say, you're, you're bad, it's terrible, right? That would not, that would be completely ineffective. We desire our work that will come with results. We want instant results to our work. Or even if not instant results, we very much like the idea that we should know when we get our results. That may be true in the material world, but it is not true in the spiritual world. The word Paul uses for proper time is this unique Greek word which which indicates it will come in the time that God decides it will come. In the material world, you get to work and then get results. In the spiritual world, sometimes you work and you work and you work and you don't see the results. But at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. See, here's the difference. In our world, we do the work and then we produce the results. In God's world, we do the work and then God does what he wants to do when he wants to do, promising that it will yield the harvest that he wants it to yield. You can't control how God uses your work. But Paul says that if you do not give up, if you are persistent in doing good, you will reap a harvest. And God loves keeping promises. Some of you have relationships with your family members, with your children, in your marriages, and you have been working and working and working, and you're not seeing the results that you want. Rest assured, if you continue to do good and you do not give up, we will reap a harvest, the Bible says, because we worship the Lord of the harvest. Paul even uses this analogy a different place where he says, I plant, someone else waters, but who makes it grow? God makes it grow. So we are not in charge of the growth, God is, but that means it happens on his timing, not our own timing. In 1793, a man named William Carey traveled to India to be a missionary to the Hindu people. He preached the gospel to the Hindu people day in and day out for seven years. 
Now, if you wanted someone to come to faith, if you wanted to be a missionary, how often would you want to preach and how long would you preach day in and day out expecting to see results? He did it for seven years. He even writes this in one of his journals. He says, I feel as a farmer does about his crop. Sometimes I think the seed is springing and thus I hope a little blasts all and my hopes are gone like a cloud. They were only weeds which appeared, or if a little corn sprung up, it quickly died. Being either chalked with weeds or parched up by the sun of persecution. Yet I still hope in God and will go forth in his strength and make mention of his righteousness, even of his only. William Carey wrote this in 1793. He would continue to preach day in and day out for seven years when on December 28, 1800, a man named Krishna Pal would become the first Hindu convert under the preaching of the gospel of William Carey. William Carey is relatively known in the missionary world because of the effectiveness of his work. But nobody talks about the fact that for seven years he was entirely ineffective. He, he did something for seven years that I'm not sure I would do for seven months, seven weeks, or seven days. He was persistent and he didn't give up. And God yielded a result in his work and in his life because God works with the seeds we plant on his timing. He makes it grow. We just scatter the seed and do the faithful planting and working. He's the one that makes it grow. And why you need to understand that is because, again, some of you are tempted to give up and you're tempted to withdraw and you're tempted to give up on that relationship, that marriage. You're tempted to give up with that child of yours. You're tempted to give up at the job you're at in the relationships you've got. You're tempted to give up. And Paul says, no, we must be persistent and a harvest will result if we do not give up. Some of you need to be reminded this morning that God's promises never fail. We serve a promise-making and promise-keeping God. His promises never fail, and He promises that if we continue to do good work, He promises that there will be a harvest. For some of us, that's all we have this morning, is the ability to say, Lord, I, I'm just going to trust that if I continue to serve you, that you're going to do what only you can do. You need to know what your role is and what God's role is. And there's great freedom in knowing that your role is only to say, God, I'm going to do good work, and I'm going to be persistent, and I'm going to trust you with the results. You can work more effectively if you can trust God with the results. You can serve more powerfully, more faithfully, more sacrificially, if you're willing to trust God with the results. 
But if you start to feel like you're responsible for the results, man, you'd be weary very quickly. I have preached zero sermons in my entire career where my expectation is that everybody who I preach to who does not know Jesus would come to faith. If I felt like it was my responsibility in any way, shape, or form to try to get people to come to faith, I would not preach another sermon in my life. It would be too much pressure to put on myself that the effectiveness of my sermon is what's going to save someone. Lord, I couldn't bear the pressure. Rather, my responsibility is to faithfully proclaim as best as I can the goodness of God and then to trust him with the results. So as you think about service, When you're struggling to be persistent, you focus on the prize. The prize is the harvest that God is working if we do not give up. So maybe you're wrestling with, who do I serve? Who do I do good to? Well, that's the third point, the people. It's important to see this text once again. Galatians 6, verse 10, therefore, so Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. All people. Christians, you are called to do good to all people. And I I want you to hear me clearly because sadly our reputation as a Christian people in this country is not that we care about doing good to all people. Does Paul say, does the Bible say, does the Lord teach us that we're to do good to to the people who we like? No. How about to the people who we enjoy being around? No. How about to the people who say nice things about us? No. We're instead to do good to all people, even our enemies. If you are a Christian, you bear a responsibility to do good even to your enemies. A a, a rich young ruler, sorry, uh, sorry, another man walks up to Jesus and asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' response to him is not to answer the question, who's your neighbor, but instead to teach him that he bears a responsibility, if he's a Christian, to be a neighbor to everyone. You're to do good to all people. Jesus said, it's really easy to love people who love you back. But I say to you, love even your enemies. Christians are to do good to all people. I was uh, recently with a group of high school boys many of whom, most of whom were not Christian, and we were talking about Christianity. And I asked them this question, why is it that you're not Christian? Because I like to discern, if you listened to my sermon a couple weeks ago, I talked about how I like to ask that question to people. Hey, why is it, have you ever heard of Christian faith? Why aren't you Christian? I'm curious, genuinely curious, what what has kept you from becoming a Christian? And a couple of these uh, high school boys I was talking to said, the reason I'm not a Christian is because Um, I have been so mistreated by Christians. I said, what do you mean? They said, there are Christians who we know, who I know, and they have treated me so poorly. They have treated us so poorly. And and if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. And I said to them, okay, so you're frustrated because you know Christians 
who have mistreated you and mistreated others? And they said, yes. And I said, so what you want from those people, you want them to be more Christian, right? And you could just see confusion written all over their faces. They were like, no, Pastor Trevor, we don't want the, we don't like that they're Christian. And I'm saying, yeah, 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 but your issue is that they don't love well. Is that right? And he said, yes. And I said, so you should want them to be more Christian because the God they follow and the Jesus they serve has taught them to love their neighbors, to love even their enemies, to love all people, to do good to all people. So you don't want them to become less Christian. You want them to become more Christian. Is that right? And they thought about it more and they thought, Yeah, that's right. We want people to become Christian. We want the Christians to be more Christian. And I was thinking, this is a home run. This is great. I got them right where I want them. Right? Because they're they're all going, no, we want people to be like this. If you've got issues with the church, some of you are here are not Christian, and your beef with the church is this. You go, those Christians, they, they don't really do good to all people. They do good to people who think like them, vote like them, look like them, hang out with them. They they don't care about the all people. I I struggle with this sometimes. I, I know that I'm not alone. We as a church do not proclaim that we always get this right. In fact, we confess every week that we get it wrong. Were you here for that moment earlier today where we stood together and we confessed that we do not love God and love others as we should? We do that almost every week. We declare we are not good at this, but this is the standard. This is what we're about. Paul says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. You'll never understand how to do this until you understand how God has been so good to you. What is the, what do you need to have in order to get into heaven? The answer to that question is, you need to be perfect. If you want to be in the presence of a perfect God and you want to go to heaven, what do you need to be? You need to be perfect. You must, actually. You must be perfect. Are there people who are in heaven if you're going to... Whoa, that's different. The the standard of heaven is perfection. We miss this. You have to hear this. You've got to get this. In order to be in heaven, you must be perfect. There's a problem with me and every one of you in this room. We're not. So how is it possible that there are people in heaven if they are not perfect and they must be perfect to be in the presence of a perfect God? The answer is relatively simple. A long time ago from eternity's past, God decided that he was going to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that if we trusted in him, he would forgive us and cleanse us and declare us righteous even though we aren't. That is the good news of the gospel. See, a lot of people in our world think, 
the way to get to heaven is just be better than their idiot friend or people they see on the internet, right? Just got to be better than my neighbor. That's how I, right? That's that old adage about you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than your friend. That, that's People think that about heaven. I, in order to get to heaven, I just got to be better than the average person. No, to, to be in the presence of God in heaven, you must be perfect. And God made a way for you to be perfect. That is, through the work of Christ, you can be made and declared perfect and forgiven so that you can be in God's presence, not having a righteousness of your own, but having a righteousness that comes from God. Now, when you get that, when you get that, See, see, if you start with heaven is just like a little bit better of a place than where I'm at now, then you don't really see the beauty of what God has done for you. But if you get that God invites you into his perfect presence forever because of what he has done, even though you have been rebellious, you've turned your back on him, you've denied him with your life, you've failed to love him and you've failed to love your neighbor, you lead most of your life as though you're your own king in charge of your own little kingdom. When you get that God has been so kind and so gracious to you, then you get to ask the question, did I deserve God? God's goodness to me? And the answer is no, which then causes you to turn to the person that you are less likely to love and to say, it doesn't matter if they deserve my goodness. I've received undeserved goodness. I'm going to extend undeserved goodness. Christians are to be people who extend undeserved goodness because we received undeserved goodness. Amen? Do you get, you? if you miss that, you miss everything. That's, that's it. That's the whole thing. You want to love your neighbor? You have to see the way God has been a neighbor to you. You want to love your enemy? You have to see that you were once the enemy of God. When you get that, then you see that what God has done for you is out of his great love and mercy for you, and it will change your heart. We are called to love all people, to serve all people. Let us do good to all people, but not equally. That's my last point, priority. Some of you who are just very excited about the point I just made about all people are going to be a little bit irritated with this point. That's okay. I'm just teaching the Bible. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Therefore, as we have, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. The Bible teaches that we are to do good to all people, but that we do not do good to all people equally. In fact, it would be impossible for you to love all of your neighbors equally all of the time. I think you know that. The Bible teaches the importance of priority. And Galatians 6 says that we priority, we make a priority our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who belong to the family of believers. This is something we've talked about before. It's called moral proximity. Right? If you, if you came up to me right before I gave this sermon and you said, uh, you said, hey, Trevor, a woman in Santa Monica is in the emergency room, but you don't know her, I would say, oh, maybe I would say a prayer for her. If you said a woman in our church is in the emergency room right now, I might do more than just say a prayer. I might send an elder over. Or we might say, hey, let's go, let's go figure out what's going on. If you said that woman is your wife, I wouldn't be here right now. Right? If you were here a few months ago, John Lee preached on how, how I would be a terrible husband if I said, I love all women equally. No. 
No, I, I, I got married to one woman who I said, I'm going to love you first above all. I'm going to love all women, but I'm going to give you my special love. You're going to get more of me than anybody else would. So too it is true that we are to do good to all people, and at the same time, there is a, a, a priority that we are to give to certain people. Famously, Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do unto me. And that passage is misused all the time because Jesus says, it's whatever you do to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. And Jesus at one point says, who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Those who do the will of my father. What what I am Hoping that you will see is that in the Bible, Christians are both called to do good to all people, but we are to prioritize some people, and namely, we are to prioritize those who belong to the family of believers. You, you, got, you have to understand that this prioritization must play a role in your whole life. You, you can't, if you are not spending enough time with your family, you can't just go hang out with your friends. You've got to prioritize your family. Some of you, you work too much. You're not prioritizing your family. You're not getting the moral proximity that God has given you. So for our context, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So let me challenge you. Let me press you a little bit. The church is not a consumeristic concert. I know that these lights are changing, which gives you the impression that this may be some sort of show. It isn't. The Bible nowhere defines the church as a show. It's not a show. It's not a performance. It's not a concert. The church is a people, a family of faith. In fact, in one point, in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the church as a body. And he says, you have hands in the body, you have feet in the body, you have you know, eyes in the body, and all of the body parts need to come together to make up the body. And if you're a foot, if God made you to be a foot and connected to his people, and if you're a foot and you're not operating in your footedness, then our church will limp. Because we need, you, we need you to be the foot that God's called you to be. Here's why I bring this up. Because we as a church, our dream and our vision and our goal is that we would not be a church where a few people would do a lot of the service and a lot of other people would show up, consume a service, and then leave. If you're a member of this church, we will fail you if you are not serving the body. If you're, we're not pulling together, we will never be the church God's called us to be, to serve the world God's called us to serve, if we do not, as a church, bring together our gifts and pull together all serving those who belong to the family of believers. We, are, um, we, wanna, we, we need to and want to begin a nursery ministry We need people who will say, hey, you know what? I would love to serve in the nursery. 
We've got middle school and high school students. We need people who say, hey, I would love to serve middle school and high school. We've got, we've got some people who say, hey, I'd love to come and serve in the band. Hey, I'd love to pray with people in the service. Hey, I'd love to carry some heavy things because I, I want to do that. We need a church of people where we are both using our gifts and also where we are serving one another sacrificially. Hudson Taylor famously said, I don't think I've, he's a famous missionary to China. He said, I don't know that I've ever actually sacrificed anything for the Lord. Because everything I gave, he gave me back more in return. I look back on my days in Mexico in that hot summer sun, and I think about the moment when I woke up to rise and shine, and, and I think, man, I would, I would go back to myself right now and I would say, Trevor, you're missing it. This is so good, the work that's happening here. And you're allowing your weariness and your exhaustion to get in the way of the beauty of what God is doing here. So my hope and expectation and, and just, I just will be very honest with you, if you're a member of this church and I sit down with you or grab coffee with you or bump into you, I'm probably going to ask you, hey, are you serving your brothers and sisters in the faith? Are, are, are you doing this? Are you doing good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers? And my hope is that you're saying, yes, yes, here's how I'm serving. And I, my hope is that you're also saying, yes, I'm also here to serve more. I believe that the Lord has given us all the gifts we need to accomplish what the Lord has asked us to accomplish. The question is, will we be the kind of people who offer ourselves up to him and say, Lord, here we are. We're here to serve you. We don't want to grow weary in doing good. We trust you with the outcomes. We trust you with the results. We are your, your obedient people. You've been so good to us. That's who we want to be as a church. That's where we're headed as a church. That's what we're about as a church. So my encouragement's for you this morning. If you are in a season of weariness, don't give up. The harvest is coming. Don't give up. Don't give up. Love everybody the Lord puts in front of you. Love your enemies. Love those people that irritate you. Love your neighbors. Maybe start loving your actual neighbors if you don't know them. Serve the church. Serve your brothers and sisters. Serve here. Get involved. At rc.link, you can click the serve button, and you can sign up to serve in lots of places. Everything we want to do as a church is going to be dependent on us as a church. I used this analogy the other day, and then I realized my kids didn't know what I was talking about. You guys remember Voltron? Yeah, there you go. Mason remembers Voltron. Voltron, right, was that like all these machines came together and created this one thing. It's like such a biblical image. We come together with our individual parts and compose one body. And that body is strongest when all the parts are together and no part is looking down on any other part. 1 Corinthians 12. The eye does not get to say to the foot, we don't really need a foot. The foot doesn't get to say to the eye, we, do we really need an eye? That seems kind of wasteful. No, we need everybody to serve and everybody needs to pull in the direction the Lord has called us to serve in. All right, that's Galatians chapter 6. Let me close our time together this morning in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we pause in this moment, and I want to thank um, you. I reflect on how you made a way for us to be in your presence through your son Jesus and how we do not deserve that. I look at my own life, and I think about my tendency to sin in a multitude of ways. And I think about your grace 
and your goodness and how you forgive again and again and again. You are so kind to me. You are so kind to us. Lord, we thank you that you are God and that we are not. I want to pray for those who are here who are in difficult marriages, difficult jobs, have difficult family relationships. I want to pray for those who are struggling to serve, who are weary and tired and exhausted. Lord, I pray that you would help those who are too tired and too exhausted because they're not resting, rest well so that they might serve well. And I want to pray for those who are just tired because they're not seeing the outcomes they want to see. Lord, I pray that they would trust you with the outcomes. You are the God of the harvest, and you promise to give a harvest if we do not give up. Lord, I pray that we would remain close to you. We can't serve you in our own power. We can't do what you want us to do in our own strength. We desperately need you. And I pray for those who are here this morning who do not know you. Lord, I pray that they would see that you are the God who made them. You are the God who knows them. You are the God who loves them. You are the God who offers forgiveness to them. Lord, I pray that this morning that they would open their eyes, their ears, and their hearts to receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, never let us forget that everything that we need in order to be able to serve one another has got to be rooted in how well you have served us. Let us not run too quickly to doing without first receiving. Let us not make this sermon about what we need to do. Let us make it about what you have done for us so that we might live in the light of your glory, of your kingdom. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that we get to be in Galatians 6 together. Correct us, challenge us, Help us to be more faithful to you in all that we do. Help us to be a church where everybody, every single person is serving their brothers and sisters well, using the gifts that you have given them for the benefit and blessing of one another and for your kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.